Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. It's Sunday, March 10th, 2019, and we are back in Richmond, Virginia. Yes, the much-anticipated Richmond broadcast where annually we get together with Cindy and David Gompert to see if we uh, can push the envelope here in terms of podcast production. Is that a fair description? Yes, yes. So welcome, Cindy. Hello. And David. Here. Here we go. Here we go. It's been another busy week. Yes. Including for me, a trip to the Beinecke Rare Book Library at Yale. Yes. With my buddies, Kathy Easton and Leisha Walsh. And we went up to see a bunch of little uh, exhibitions, all under the heading of Bibliomania. Okay, and uh, we, we had a great time. First of all, the Beinecke building is fantastic. It has no windows. We arrived when we finally found the building. I took one look at it and said, this is not my favorite building. Yeah. And by the time we left, it was my favorite building. I think that's a comment on you more than the Beinecke. I, I think that is, but I, I love to be surprised in that way. Right. I love to come in with a negative attitude. Yeah. and uh, like, visit, like visiting the Gompers. That's yeah. right. No, no, no. The Gompers, it's the reverse. Yeah. But, but go ahead. I, I interrupt. So anyway, yeah. so uh, it's uh, a building with all these marble panels, yeah. translucent marble panels instead of windows. And that is because it's a rare book library and so you don't want uh real light you know nasty uv rays uh destroying the stuff in the center there's a a core uh of the books the books are all lined up thousands of books to the ceiling behind glass and uh, the exhibition was great it was four little gems of uh exhibitions one about the whole art of marbling you know, making those marble designs on paper and the history of that going back to like, I don't know, the 15th century. And uh, then there was something that they called Habits Ancient and Modern. Uh, Basically, it was about a collection belonging to the Polone brothers in Italy from the 16th century. And what was fun about that was the four edges of the books were painted by a distant cousin of Titian. Um, of course, that's, what, that's the way you sell it. Cesare Vercelli. So you know who painted this? There's a distant cousin of Titian. Distant, but a cousin of Titian, right? And, and anyway, the books were shelved in such a way, so the bindings, yeah. the spines were against the oh, really? wall. So you could see the painting of Yeah, the, uh, so the, the edges were painted with uh, decorations. And that was for a variety of reasons. Uh, partially to preserve the books themselves. The bindings were important this way. Since they're against the wall, they don't get exposed to dust and abuse, etc. So those were beautiful. Then there was something called collated and perfect. uh, Had to do with the obsession of the 18th century book collector Thomas Rawlinson and others looking for perfect editions of books. Visually, that wasn't so exciting. I mean, really, who... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, finding the best edition of a particular yeah, right, right. I, you know um, didn't knock my socks off but then there was uh, all the books in the world okay exploring the passionate collecting and printing history of the legendary 19th century bibliomaniac Thomas Phillips who collected everything I mean, there were books from the 9th century. There were random lists from the 17th century. He wasn't related to Columbus, was he? Oh. Ah, no, 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 oh, no, sorry. no. We'll get to Getting that. a little ahead We'll get of to myself. another yeah. All the Books in the World guy. You can imagine. We're going to come back to this. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you can it took, that. Yeah, why? after yeah. he died, yeah. it took over 100 years to disperse his collection. Why? I can, because there know, was so much just to sell. All everything he owns. Just to organize been, everything uh, he listen, owns. We've been selling everything we own, and we, it'll take another. So you're right up there with, I, with the greats. Longer than years yeah, ago. yeah. And there was there was actually a, a huge uh, blow up, yeah. a picture of one of his closets, yeah. which was just a hoarder's closet. It was just piles of 
I Papers think the coppers can match that also. Together. I, I think a I, cautionary you tale. You could save yourself a trip to New Haven. A anyway, of days we had a great time in New Haven. We went to a great restaurant yeah. that we found from a guy on the street yeah. called Roya, which was the old main dining room and hotel in the Taft Hotel. And uh, you know those big old dining room rooms. Uh, it was uh, just a great space, and uh, we really had great food. Really, it was accessible food. But it was innovative and delightful. Small right. portion? Not really small. Well, we'll get to that in our oh, restaurant okay. segment. We, got, we have <laughs> a lot to cover here. Yeah. Uh, all right. So excellent. So uh, I'm sorry. Did, did you have more? No. New okay. Haven. I recommend right. so here, so it. Here, so even though it has Yale there. Well, well I enjoyed a day at Yale, <laughs> even though I'm a Princeton Tiger. Uh, well, overlook that. Um, yeah. So we were on separate trips, separate adventures this week. So you were at Yale uh, with your buddies and uh, Lisa Walsh and. Meanwhile, with Tom Walsh, you went to the, the, the theater. Because the men go to the theater, the, the women women go uh, to uh, you know these book things, and the men go to the theater. So we went to see Tom and I on Thursday. Went to see True West uh, by Sam Shepard, starring Ethan Hawke and Paul Dano. Uh, and uh, Paul Dano, in my mind, uh, from There Will Be Blood, although quite a few other things, Ethan Hawke from a million things including First Reformed most recently, uh, but you know, other stuff beside Boyhood, and etc. And um, it's a two-person play. Uh, you know, I said to Tom at, uh, would you like to call halftime at intermission? <laughs> I said, well, it's pretty good so far. It's not too crazy. It's a relationship between these two, uh, two guys, it's brothers. Uh, one's a more conventional uh, screenwriter. A little buttoned up. The other is, seems a little wild, and he's been out there in the desert, and he's come back. Some tension between them. And I, as I said to Tom at the intermission, I said, well, this is pretty interesting. Get the characters. Not as crazy as a normal Shepherd play. Then we had the second act, and it was as crazy as a normal Shepherd play. <laughs> and it ended up with people screaming and jumping all over each other and basically throwing things all over the kitchen they were in and strangling each other. And that was just the audience. <laughs> that was just the audience. Well, part of the audience probably would have been uh, happy to participate in that. So it was a little crazy. I didn't quite get it. Uh, I tried to read a little bit about the play later in terms of what other productions were trying to get across there. And uh, I think I know where it went wrong in that uh, perhaps when this play really works, what you're really doing is you're showing two different sides of the same individual. One, the very uh, dynamic but extremely dangerous Ethan Hawke character, uh, counterculture guy, and the other being the uh, more conventional uh, very disciplined uh, brother played by Paul Dano and as the play goes on you can see there is a reversal they start assuming each other's roles as, as events occur uh, the problem is that notwithstanding that in the most successful productions I understand it that uh, the tension mounts and it's highly tense and it becomes violent but you can understand why the switch is so substantial and, and volatile here uh, the, the brothers didn't come across so much as dangerous as messy uh, so you ended up not with a dangerous situation, but in an extremely messy kitchen. Uh, so in any event, uh, it is what it is. I guess there's some people love Sam Shepard. I'm still haven't figured him out yet, but uh, I think it's a pretty decent production, and the, the acting is very good. And Ethan Hawke in particular is very interesting, and, and so is Dan So that's the roundabout. Roundabout, but yes. it's almost closing. It's almost limited closing. run closing. Uh, a week or two left. It's right. Forty seconds. Right and now. next up is Kiss Me Kate. Yes. Oh, in in that go. same theater. Excellent. With uh, Kelly O'Hara. Yes. Yes, we'll have to see it again. And notwithstanding that when I said to my father, when the last production came out with Stokes Mitchell 10 or 15 years ago, I said, Dad, would you like to go to see Kiss Me, Kate? Uh, he said, I've seen it. And, and I said to him, Dad, that was in 1948. He said, yeah, very good. <laughs> but well, I'm willing to see it again. I wanted, uh, I wanted to make a comment. Yes. It sounds like a true West play. sounds like a lot of family Family stories. Family stories. Well, you know, familial familiarity. Yes. Well, but you see, but but for Sam Shepard, we got off light because the last time Tams and I saw one of those so-called familiar stories, it was a brother and sister who were lovers. So you know, <laughs> this 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 just went down easy compared to that one. But the messy kitchen kind of rings true. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very messy kitchen. Okay. All right. So the find of the week, perhaps, is David found an article about how the Ice Age affected the 17th century. Well, I'm. Yeah, I'm about Did to I explain. You got the right century. Yeah. Uh, See if you can tie it up. For Tamsin me. mentioned great books from the 15th, 16th, 18th, and 19th centuries. She didn't mention the 17th century, and there's a reason for that. 
because the 17th century was a time of what's called the Little Ice Age. Really? And this is very informative because this was climate change in the form of global cooling, not global warming, but there was definitely significant global cooling that took place actually in the late 16th, early 17th centuries, according to Philip Blum, reviewed Blum, Blum okay, yeah. reviewed by one Peter Miller in the uh, Times Book Review section. Wait a minute, what's the title of the book? The title of the book is Nature's Mutiny, How the Little Ice Age of the Long 17th Century Transformed the West and Shaped the Present. And so the book is by... It's by Philip Blum. Yeah, Philip Blum. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Go. So, global cooling had a big impact, not only on life in the 17th century, but ever since. Right. Uh, the first impact occurred right at the turn of the century, uh-huh. and it was uh, food scarcity. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, with much shortened growing seasons, mm-hmm. uh, people were starting to go hungry, first of all, on the farms themselves, because most of it was subsistence farming. So you had lots of hunger on the farms mm-hmm. as a consequence of the plummeting temperatures. In Western Europe? Yeah, in, okay. in Europe generally. But, All right. Okay. Uh, that's all, at that stage, that was right. important. And were there naysayers? The uh, there were naysayers. Those were the folks in the city who were you know, fat, dumb, and happy. <laughs> right. Because they had all the food they needed until it ran out. Right. Okay. And saying, two like, bad things happened. First of all, they ran out of food, and secondly, all the peasants came to the cities. Okay, so the cities were overrun. So the cities were overrun by hungry people, Okay, <laughs> and there was no food in the cities. So right. that's when things really got tense. And, and, the, and the people and, at the top were still and, saying, what is all this bull Let them eat cake. About? Yeah, well, yeah, in fact, it got <laughs> so bad. Cold cake. It got so bad, there was actually a siege of Paris by poor peasants wanting uh-huh. to get food. Uh-huh. From the rich people who had no food because they don't grow food okay. in Paris. Yeah. They only grow food outside. But at one point, the starving defenders of the city discussed breaking into a cemetery, removing the bones, oh grinding them into fine flour, and then using it to bake bread. Oh my God. Oh. Oh. Well, thanks for bringing that Hunger up. led to violence, <laughs> very serious violence. It also led to a renewal of interest in religion because a lot of people yeah. thought that this is the God the was flailing them right, right. for their sins, thus shortening the growing season and starving them. So there was a, a burst of religious fervor, mm-hmm. also violent. In fact, this is a century of extreme religious violence. Catholic on Protestant, Protestant on Catholic. Well, is that related at all to like Louis the Fourteenth uh, persecuting Huguenots no. towards the end of the century? Uh, it might have, but it led more significantly to the Thirty Years' War. Okay. The Thirty Years' War uh, in the first half of the seventeenth century was absolutely grisly, mm-hmm. and uh, and the religious uh, fervor and feuding. Uh, didn't recognize any national boundaries. Uh-huh. But in Germany, in the low countries, in France, the uh, northern Italy violence was horrific, mm-hmm. all caused by the hunger that resulted from the shortened growing seasons. Okay. Uh, and just, if I may, extrapolate a little bit from this. This yeah. evidently is not in the book, but it should have been. Yeah. The Thirty Years' War was uh-huh. ended at the with the Peace of Westphalia. Right. Very significant. When the powers that be, uh-huh. those who were still alive, yeah. said, we can't go through this again. Yeah. We need to establish sovereign boundaries of things called nation states. Ah, so until this is the birth had, of the nation states. In, until then, there had been no nation state, okay. no principalities and kingdoms and so on. Right. So they set up the nation state and established the principle that you are in control, you must be in control of your borders to be sovereign. And if you are sovereign, nobody can mess with you, but you can't mess with other sovereigns either. These basic principles of how international politics are supposed to work mm-hmm. were established with the Treaty of Westphalia that ended the Thirty Years' War that resulted from the famine mm-hmm. and the religious fervor that started with the 
Little Ice Age. What caused there you the, have it. What caused the Ice Age? Um, I think it's, it was cooling. caused by people not <laughs> emitting enough carbon monoxide. <laughs> what he didn't tell you about the, you know all the all the cars that were on the highways during those times that were really destroying the ozone layer. Well, that's why they invented cars. No, they had too many to cars. Emit, yeah, to, move, you know, move up the emitments. Um, all right, so that. Wait is, a minute. Did you yeah. say emitments? Emitments. Emitments. Wait a minute. <laughs> Write that down. Okay. It's a word that's not used often enough. All right. We're, we're if you to, can top that, be my guest. We're on to the restaurant segment. We're on, we're on, Speaking of right. hunger. So wait a minute. It was a review. Um, so yay or nay on the book? Oh, nay. Well, it depends on how well you... If you're steeped in 17th century history, it's not I wouldn't book. bother. <laughs> we know everything we need to know oh, just I, by your uh, synopsis. Okay. All right. So we're in Richmond. We love to come to Richmond because it has a great food scene. All right. And uh, so in the Richmond Times Dispatch yep. today, there is a review of a uh, fairly new restaurant called Long Oven. All right. And uh, this review by Justin Lowe uh, says that though Richmond is fast becoming a major food city, some critics seem to resist the notion that a place like Long Oven should expect the same, um, the same of us. Going, in other words, going to the uh, the big multi-course tasting menu uh, restaurants. And uh, it says Richmond cannot be a big food city until we embrace those kinds of restaurants. And uh, so he says Long Oven shouldn't be a hard sell. Re- opened yes last year in Scott's edition offering an otherworldly tasting menu for $110 per person, plus $55 uh, uh, for the wine tasting. This is going to lead to hunger among the peasants <laughs> who are going to attack the cities, cause okay. religious wars. Oh, man. Okay, sorry. Um, well, it's very... Um, it's a fancy restaurant. It's, it's a restaurant. fancy restaurant. It's Nine side. courses, seven savory two dessert, and five wine pairings, including a ceremonious glass of champagne, okay? And it includes things like a cured rockfish that tasted like a day on the beach, some mignardises, those are little dessert bites, okay? And a sun-choke mousse. Now, I mean, this all sounds plausible when I say it, but if you saw the pictures, I mean, it's very precious stuff. And But you said this is in a cool neighborhood, Scott's edition? It's the new and upcoming it's, it's industrial area. It's the, place it's the frontier. Be. And it's supposed to have a Nordic-Japanese elegant vibe. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, let's see. You're, you're hungry uh, the, an hour and a half after you've eaten? Here he describes the humble sunchoke brilliantly transformed into a spoon of white cream. Ugh. Underneath lay hidden succulent rubies of shrimp and an emerald green drizzle of mint oil. The arrival of Long Oven marks an important moment in Richmond's evolution as a major food city. If we believe in the capacity of Richmond with its growing food scene to achieve great things, then we must embrace our city's world-class dining destinations like Long Oven, whose tasting menus are worth every penny. Okay, so as a matter of fact, so we went out to eat last night and we kind of went to the opposite end of the spectrum. We went to a very old, tiny place. Yes, yes. We drove to um, halfway halfway between Richmond and Petersburg to a restaurant called Halfway House. Promising name, yeah. Ate in the basement. Right. And in fact, as you're driving up, it's just a random road with all kinds of, you know, Tire repair, tire repair uh, lot services, etc. There's a lot of randomness, including and, the fact that the kitchen is in a separate building from the restaurant. And the kitchen is partially a log cabin. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this is a restaurant that was somehow involved in the Civil War. I mean, it goes back. 
And the menu... I believe it fed Grant's army during the nine-month siege of Petersburg. Well, it? possibly. It's the same menu, isn't it? Um, well, it's well, it's what say, we might call classics. If, they were, if they're right? feeding Grant's army, uh, they were probably more crowded then during the Civil War than they were last night because it was a little light in terms of attendance. One other table. And <laughs> they were driven away. But... We, it was quite cozy. We there liked were fireplaces. It. Yes, yeah. it, was, it was a the, nice cozy The space. food was uh, really quite good. And we were with people who... We love. We tolerate. That's right. <laughs> so, I, I uh, have, everything is available in Richmond. The new hip places. Uh, yeah. And what were you going to say, Cindy? I have to go back to Long Oven with this uh, entree that tastes like a day at the beach. Yeah. I don't know what that and means. I, I don't, don't either, mean. and I'm just having visions of... Is that a positive or a negative thing? Sand. Coney Island whitefish? Stop. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, um, I think it it defies uh, our understanding of food. We're not there yet. No. I mean, there's a picture of pork rib. Does that look anything like ribs? No. 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 It actually looks a little bit like raw no, bacon. It's, 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 yes. it's, it's uh, not for so, us. But the, the question is, does Richmond have a population that's going to you know, get excited by that? Maybe they will. I think possibly. I think we, we have seen definitely yeah, things are happening. Things in between those spectrums. Right. And uh, Richmond, just, when we drive around. Just in the several years that you've come down that's here. Right. Yeah. And uh, the restaurants look terrific. That's all of them. The question so is, that's why we keep coming. And <laughs> we're here so that you guys keep up. I mean, if, if not for us, you're going to go to the same tired places. We but just, you got to step up your game. When you're not here, she just gets in her in her uh, sweat clothes every day and just gets in and out of bed. And oh, that's a nice thing Doesn't to say. fix meals. And, <laughs> and then... <laughs> all right. Move. Moving right along. That's too much information, but yeah. Uh, okay, now I think, now here here it is. This is what uh, David was referring to earlier when I was talking about all the books in the world. Can you believe that Christopher Columbus had a son named Hernando? All right. You can stop he, right there. Illegitimate son. <laughs> is that okay? right? But he acknowledges him oh, later. Really? All right. And he was a librarian. Okay, mm. I mean that's one of those things. You look at your dad, and he's pretty much conquering the world, and you say, "What can I do to avoid <laughs> to avoid what he does?" Well, to, to just have my own, out of have my yeah. what will my niche be, yeah. and it will be the library. And, His father's uh, niche was discovering the new world, right? That's right, and he's going to discover all the books. Um, this is a review in the Wall Street Journal of the catalog of shipwrecked books by. Edward Wilson Lee, and it's a review by Ernest Hilbert, and it talks about, this is a great story, Um, Hernando, uh, very well educated, and uh, actually works uh, a little bit in the Spanish courts of Isabella, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he showed promise as a list maker extraordinaire. (laughs) There you go. Well, this is just interesting. He sets out to try to organize all the knowledge in the world, okay? In other words, as David puts it, he basically was Google right. before there was Google. Before there were computers. Okay, right. he is really the uh, 15th century version of Google. And he, he trying to buy all the books. He buys an enormous amount of books in Venice, 20,000 books that actually end up at the bottom of the Bay of Naples. Uh, no, he, no, I, I'm exaggerating. 1,600 uh, books that end up at the bottom of the Bay of Naples. And one of the things he's trying to do is really organize all this information. It's one thing to own a big bunch of books, like our buddy Phillips in the Yale exhibition. It's another thing to, to try to organize all this data. Um, and so he really aspires to that, and he comes up with a w- a way of organizing them using hieroglyphs. Oh God! <laughs> and uh, a little bit hard to understand. Anyway, it's pretty fascinating. A lot of his books were lost. Once he dies, uh, the books uh, are kind of lost to the Inquisition. Not fond of certain books, right? Not, not to mention the Little Ice Age. Okay. Yeah. And and then because of floods. Uh, So out of the 20,000 or more books that he ended up with, uh, less than 4,000 come down to us today. I mean, he was very mindful of all the great libraries that were destroyed during, you know, by Visigoths, uh, et cetera, over time. He had quite the, uh, he had a security system. You could look at the books, all right? This is a little bit nicer than uh, the Beneke system. 
you could look at the books, but in order to handle them, you stood behind bars and you reached your arms through the bars mm. to the books on the other side to manipulate them. Wow. So anyway, this is Hernando Columbus. Who knew? Yeah. And, uh, and I, as an aside here, was it something like Osiris? Osiris. Yeah. Osiris. Dot one. Dot a for a hieroglyphics. You don't know oh, what you that mean means. there's a hieroglyphic system? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, oh God. No, 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 no. I mean, it was, it was basically it was pictures. Yeah. Meant to well, that's what Reverend Osiris, Osiris is. Yeah. Yeah. Cuneiform. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, there was obviously something going on between father and son here that we might want to, I mean, something fairly Freudian. You have a father who uh, was away a lot, right? Yeah. A son uh, had no role model because yeah. his father was away so much, looking for some something he could do. Yeah. So he went to Isabella, who was the one who commissioned Columbus's voyage. Yeah, and made his pitch, and she she went for it. Yeah, so I, he, he's a pretty impressive guy. Maybe I was, was only familiar mother. with with the son Doug, um, but I had not heard of Hernando. No, Hernando, uh, worthy worthy of some exploration. Yes, and uh, interesting that a guy who starts out his talent as list making can go this far. Yeah, yeah. There's something for you to do. All right, look, retirement. here's something. This is to me even a uh, more uh, amazing. Uh, coming from lack of education, yes. Uh, Well, I'll just describe the situation. A fellow died by the name of Jerry Merriman. Jerry Merriman helped, uh, (laughs) he helped design, uh, if not with the principal person, behind the famous uh, TI calculator. Texas Instruments. Texas Instruments. Yeah. So what happens is that uh, he's part of a team that in the mid-1960s, the powers that be, uh, at Texas Instrument, go to a bunch of guys and say, we want you to build a calculator that fits in the palm of a hand. Get out. No, that they just say, this is a project. It's about the same time that uh, you know Kennedy was saying, let's go to the moon. I'm giving you you know f- seven years. At, at Texas Instrument, uh, the team is being brought in to say to build a calculator. And he grew up a kind of a tinkerer, uh, right? I'll get to uh, that oh, you're going to get to that. Okay. Yes. okay. And uh, sure enough, uh, they do. They do. Yeah. <laughs> they sit around. One guy's a Nobel Prize winner as part of the team, a later Nobel Prize winner. The other, uh, you know, huge uh, background in education. And there's Jerry Merry- Merriman. And who is Jerry? Jerry's a guy who didn't get any real education. Certainly didn't go to college. I'm not, it's not clear he finished high school, but he's a guy who grew up tinkering with things, as Tamsin said a moment ago. That's his thing. So as a child, born in 1932, he's in a small town of Hearn, Texas. He, uh, he likes to take things apart. He takes clocks apart, and he puts them together. And I was, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day about my famous job of rewiring the stereo. They said, "Well, that's how people do that." I knew you were people who were kids <laughs> who took things apart, put them together. They just could do that. Well, he could do that. Then he started taking radios apart and putting them together. So he's in a small town in Texas, and he's the kind of thing that people know about. They know that Jerry he didn't go to school, but he can do stuff. So he would be in the movies. At the movies, and there would be, if the police had a problem with their radio, they'd pull them out of the movies. They'd say, Jerry, we can't work the radio. What the heck's going on? And he would come over, this kid, and he'd fix the radio. Well, word gets around in Texas, and before you know it, he's on the Texas Instrument team, and he helps build the Texas Instrument calculator. So they come up with this calculator, which I'm sure you folks all remember. When this was first developed, it was kind of amazing. It came up in like 1970 with the first real model. It cost $400, which in, in, the, in terms of today's money would have been $2,600, all right? And uh, what could it do? It could do the same thing that a $2 calculator that you could buy at the supermarket could do today. And yet people went crazy. They they did. Said, well, listen, let me. I remember yeah. when I was a freshman at Princeton in the yeah. 70s, right. one of my roommates from Texas, yeah. her dad owned a typewriting business, typewriter business, she brought back with her at uh, Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving break, she brought back an adding machine with her. Big old giant adding machine that plugged in. She was the most popular girl on campus. Yeah. Everybody was coming. All the math majors were coming over to use that. But are you okay? sure it was the adding machine that <laughs> no. led to this popularity? I can tell. I'm That's the funny no, 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 no. We're not going to go into that. She was very attractive. Exactly. Yeah. But Would you like to come every, see my adding machine? Everybody's interest really perked up <laughs> once she brought back the adding it. machine. Tamsin was a young girl from a small and, town. Tamsin thought it was the adding machine. 
And then really a couple good. years later, we're buying the TI whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, TI and yeah. for a fair amount of money, not $400, yeah. but, uh, you know, within, I mean, that was in the 60s. No, it was like 200 bucks. Yeah, everybody needed, seven, yeah. You, had to, you could only take certain courses if you had a certain TI model. They would, the professors right. would say you needed the TI blankety blank to take the course. Right. But the point is. It they, couldn't do very much. And by the time our kids were all going to high school, right? I could they, do a lot. They, um, I could do a lot. Did sign and The calculator, look, calculators yeah. could do the anything. The deal is. Well, the amazing thing about this is that uh, he changed the world. You know, he, well, first of all, that yeah, that he changed the world. You know, you could make an argument. Uh, first, of all, why did they do this? Because Texas Instrument wanted to develop uses for the integrated circuit, and they said, "Well, here's something. The integrated circuit might be good for this. Who knows?" <laughs> and it turns out there is something to integrated circuits. That's number one. Number two is we can argue about whether this is more important or had more impact than actually going to the moon. Which was the parallel project going on at the same time. I know where I stand on yes, that. Yes, you're with the calculator. And, yeah. uh, and, and, number, and as we were saying last night, everything that's in your phone now yeah. can be in, it can be in the size of a it goes fingernail. Goes the greatest circuit. Yeah. 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 And number three, and, uh, it's just it's just as big as it is, right. so we can feel comfortable holding. And the third thing, it's this kid who, yeah. who took a self self taught exactly. It, it was the beginning of the end of the slide rule. Yeah, oh yeah, and there was that too. Was and, the, and the abacus. There was a big and the abacus. Yeah. Well, thank I mean, God for I was, that because I, I tried handheld. desperately. A, to you know, a handheld abacus is just I was slow. Of All right, so this is talking about trying. You can't top that. You have this article about sunglasses. It's it's not. I'm really, not trying to top it. I think uh, this this is more. actually very unsettling. All right. Um, evidently, there is a um, a tiny sunglasses craze. Yeah. Which at first glance was thought to have begun last November when Puerto Rican rapper Bad Bunny <laughs> appeared on stage with tiny, tiny sunglasses so minute that they could barely shield his pupils. And people said, wow, this is a new thing, right? a trend waiting yeah. to happen. Yeah. Until somebody said, hey, hold on. Back in 2017, Rihanna was wearing sunglasses so small that they've been compared to twin tic tacs so we have now we have a major trend yes. and one of the explanations is that well and all the the jet setters are wearing these sunglasses you'll see none around this table i should say these tiny sunglasses yeah but it's thought that they are in part nostalgic for john lennon of course, who wore tiny sunglasses. Jeremy Lyons in Die Hard with a Vengeance wore tiny, tiny sunglasses. And yeah. Well, it just comes down to money, doesn't it? We gotta, uh, the, gotta uh, the people who are selling the sunglasses yeah. got to get you to buy new ones somehow. Well, yeah. but, but here's the deal. The current resurgence of tiny sunglasses reflects an infatuation with everything 1990s. I wasn't familiar with that infatuation. <laughs> Were you? I'm, uh, yes, I do. I remember. I remember in, being in my shop and having uh, people from Cranberry Neck Road walk in with tiny sunglasses. With tiny sunglasses. I said, "What is that?" Well, the That's other thing, evidently, the other the, the other uh, sort of throwback fashion item is the chunky white athletic sneakers, the washed out jeans. They had their origins in the nineties, and of course the legendary rugby shirts. So, here's the problem. This is all for the beautiful people. Yeah. Uh, because other people say, well, you know, I don't really relate to that. They're stars. They're not like us. They can get away with wearing tiny sunglasses. And also, they're beautiful. So, they want to shield the least amount of face that they no, can. No, I think you're wrong. I think this is all about the hoarder. Because these are all things that were in style many times over uh, the last uh, several decades. And if you just hang on to those old well, jeans... Well, there's that. Yeah. We, hang on I we know, probably have a lot of I mean, I just so, say it's the, the cycle of fashion. Yeah, it's typical. But the thing is, that's why you can't throw anything away because it's going oh, to no, be... No, no, don't say that in this style. house. <laughs> <laughs> that's the wrong but, thing but, to but say. Just, just to conclude... Yeah, boy. <laughs> that was the absolute... What, yeah. This craze yeah. has spilled over into ordinary mainstream America. Where men in particular now, ordinary, you know, not beautiful people, men are coming in and ordering ridiculously small sunglasses. Oh, I'm glad that was small. 
Sunglasses. Yes, right. There was a hesitation there. Yes. <laughs> and can I ask a question? What does this have to do with the Ice Age? I don't get. I don't get it. Well, it's. Uh, it, the, did I cover the Treaty of Westphalia? Right, the up. nation state. If it hadn't been for the nation state. Moving right along. All right, we're gonna we're gonna be here all night. And there's a storm coming. Um, uh, in the uh, Wall Street Journal, yes. a review of a book called Monument Man by Howard Harold Holzer. Well, it's easy for you to say. And it's yes. the story of the sculptor, the American sculptor, the life and the art of Daniel Chester French, who gave us. The huge uh, Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial. Ah, yeah, well, that's a okay. big deal. And here, here's what you want to know about this book. It's actually supposedly a good read. It's also shockingly short for a thorough biography. It's only 367 pages. Um, and uh, it's the story of, it's the best available account, says the reviewer, John Wilmerding a Princetonian uh, professor who um, says it's the best available account of an artist who, in his public art, contributed greatly to American sculpture, political iconography, and national memory. And so, uh, you know, probably worth a read. Uh, he starts out, one of his early uh, famous works is The Minuteman, Right. A full-size rendering of a standing figure in bronze. Must Concord. Yeah. Concord, New Hampshire? Uh, And so, anyway. Concord, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Sorry. (laughs) Concord, New Hampshire. Yeah. And I said, yes. Concord, New Hampshire, where they had the Boston Tea Party. When he gets the the Lincoln Commission, uh, it's a huge project. He, um, He decides it needs to be sitting down. Because standing up, it would just be Too much crazy, Too tall. Yeah. crazy, Too tall. Yeah. And uh, so it ends up uh, sitting some 19 feet tall, uh, and it's consisting of 28 blocks of white marble. There's something, let me just what, see this. What else thing. did he sculpt? Did they mention? Yeah, yeah. He, he, they mention. The Miniman. Right, no, there's, there's a list ones. there, yeah, uh, you're, list you're, yeah. and somebody took away the paper. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been Dan. Uh, if he's not interested, he just no, no. Him. I was looking at. Oh, you know what he did? He did a portrait of John Harvard for Harvard. Okay, yeah. okay? but no one knew what he looked like. Yeah. So he keep your hands off of this. He <laughs> so he made it up. Yeah. He made up what Harvard, Mr. Harvard, looked like. Well, okay, good. but then later he does alma mater. For Columbia. Columbia. You, know, oh, really? you know, there's the big seated female yeah, figure. That, right? in in the front. Yes, you do. Yeah. Okay. So he he's he famous a for a variety of pro- projects, including Nassau the Republic, Hall. the personification of the Republic that was yeah. in the, uh, what was it, the Chicago's World Tra- Chicago World's Fair. A marvelous gilded female figure yeah. that later is lost in a fire. Correct. Do you want this? What are you going to do with it? Nothing. He had some uh, great quote about what is it about Lincoln's expression that he was seeking oh, to it's, achieve. Oh, it's wonderful. Yes, I'll. Uh, well, we can, I'll find it. You can go on to the next story here. But it was something like oh, with uh, the description of the yes, face and the yes, hands. Yes, it was job done uh, triumphant. Something. Yeah. Like uh, that. No, no, no. It's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's a good, good quote. Work over victory his. There you go. Okay. Well, that's what we all, we all okay. live by that. Moment. All right, moving right along. Yes. Uh, I, just a little squib about the estate of Melvin Simon. And he's the guy who basically invented malls. Right. And uh, his one of his last big projects was the Mall, mall of America. America. Okay. Hold on. So hold him malls responsible. Malls were invented? They were I thought invented. they just evolved. No. He, no. he, when he died in 2009 no. at 82, he was worth $1.3 million. And he had a marvelous estate in Carmel, Indiana, where the main house is over 50,000 square feet. Yeah, and he was and only worth a million bucks? 1.2 billion. 1.3 billion. billion. You said million. Oh, billion. Okay. That happens. Okay. <laughs> we got it now. We got it. Okay. He's loaded. 1.3 billion with a B. His widow recently left it to the great American Songbook Foundation, right. founded by your friend and mine, Michael Feinstein. Yeah. 
Right? Oh, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Five-time Grammy John Feinstein. nominee. Yeah. No, yeah. Michael, Michael Feinstein. So Michael and, Feinstein, uh, the idea of Michael Feinstein being in charge of a billion dollars is, is frightening. So I guess but, some people were thinking maybe it would actually serve as the Songbook Museum, right. but not so. They're going to sell it, raise money to support the foundation. And in case you're wondering... The widow put no restrictions on her donation. What happened to the shopping centers? Were they killed in some sort of extinction? They're dying. From an yeah. asteroid? He, he, sold his, he sold his... He got uh, out at the right time. Yeah, no, but, but there were shopping centers. Yeah. And then there were malls. And I always right. assumed oh, that, that it was the same species evolving. But you're saying no. No. That well, some, malls are covered. Yeah, you malls, know, as opposed yeah, to strip yes, malls. malls are covered. Look, the, oh, strip mall, the strip mall goes back to uh, the ancient Greeks, the Stoa, right? Okay. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, so it's nothing new. I, yeah, I'm being a little facetious in <laughs> saying that he invented the shopping center, okay? The mall. He invented the but mall. But he invented the, yeah. the cupboard. It's I, the cupboard. Can I cut through his hair? This is not even interesting. Let's okay. move on. He, okay. he made a truckload of money, basically. And, <laughs> yeah. and he's got this huge house in the, the middle of the Midwest. That's the deal. In India. And then finally, a review of a book... Uh, a sort of a novel based on historical events called The Peacock Feast by Lisa Gornick. And this starts out introducing Louis Tiffany, right? Louis um, C. Tiffany. Comfort. Yes, Louis Comfort Tiffany, who actually um, dynamited the breakwater below his 588-acre estate in Oyster Bay, destroying the beach. So the town of Oyster Bay had intended to make a public beach down there. Before they could do it, he dynamited it. He was it. not a very nice person. He felt it was his property. Uh, the courts that, disagreed. Um, so anyway, I thought that was interesting and revealing about Tiffany. She goes on to write a story about him and his flamboyant 84-room Oyster Bay mansion, you know, that takes off from a uh, party that he threw, okay, which um, consisted, part of the spectacle of this party consisted of his daughters processing into the dining room each carrying a large serving platter bearing a roasted peacock. <laughs> anyway, the book might be fun. Well, Cindy uh, has uh, explained to me that Tiffany um, took credit for a lot of the Tiffany, that is, Lewis Comfort Tiffany, took credit for a lot of the pieces that were not produced by him, but by women who worked for him. Right. Yeah, well, well, does that bother you? Because it's not like Raphael painted everything that's in the Vatican Palace. Well, okay, he no, had I'm just a workshop. Jumping on the bandwagon here, no, he blew up no, the beach. No, but the no. bad, the bad part was that the, their work was so wonderful, and I think it, Clara Driscoll was one of the main ones, and and she finally, I forget when this was, but she won an award for something that had been entered into a contest in Europe. And, and this is the year of the woman, so I do no, think we ought and to... and that's when she recognized. finally got some recognition. Right, but, but I'm just saying, yeah. we, there are a lot of people, she at least is getting recognition. That's okay? right. But uh, there are a lot of great artists working in the workshops of Giotto, Raphael, right. Caravaggio, you know, all these right. different people uh, yeah. have we were, workshops. Cindy and I were in the Brooklyn Museum of Art oh, yeah. not long ago, and we saw a painting of slaves, fugitive slaves on a horseback, man riding, young girl in his lap, the woman behind looking over her shoulder. It's a haunting, haunting painting. It also, that same painting is in the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts right here in Richmond. It's the same painting. They're both originals. Yeah. He painted the same painting twice. Who's he now we talk about? We forget who the artist was. The artist was uh, Homer. Winslow was Homer. it a Winslow Homer? Yeah. yeah it looked like Again, Homer. throughout history, it yeah. never bothered uh, great artists if they to do a do-over. Yeah. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, for instance, with uh, Madonna of the Rocks, does it twice. Okay, there's one in the go. Louvre, and there's one in... I learned something the, every year. The British Museum. Every year. That's right. 
You, you can't on your birthday. Exactly. You, you're wandering into very there's, difficult waters. With David, Camden David, yeah. just yeah. like with small sunglasses, there's nothing new under, under the, the sun. sun. Oh, okay. Well, there is, as a matter of fact. Oh, uh, here we go. You're perfect. perfect um, <laughs> this is a remarkable coincidence that not just one but two Mets catchers <laughs> have had LASIK surgery in order to improve their game. Yeah. Uh, Tomas Nido was catching. Uh, Noah Syndergaard. Noah Syndergaard can throw a ball 102 miles an hour, and he did. But as he was winding up, a strong wind came up and blew poor Tomas Nito's contact lens off. All right. So the and this same strong wind actually moved the fastball that's coming in at 102 miles an hour. Yeah. And Nito said he had absolutely no idea where, where it was the going ball was. because he had impaired vision yeah. and the ball was moving anyway. Yeah. So after that, he decided he'd had enough contact lenses because I don't know how frequently the wind blowing his contact lenses off during a pitch was occurring, but once was bad enough. Right. It had dire results. It had results. dire consequences. Small probability, high consequence. Okay. Yeah. So he had LASIK surgery and... Problem solved? Problem solved. Victory. So not only was his catching much safer, yeah. but his batting improved. This was a this was a 161 batter. Yeah. In one game, he hits a double. No, this, all right, go ahead, finish. Yeah. He hits a double. He slides into second base, <laughs> and the second baseman said, well, that's pretty impressive. I never saw you hit a double before. You know how... Sometimes you see the ball players talking to each other and you wonder what yeah. they're saying. Yeah. This was the conversation. <laughs> he said, how did you do that? And he said, I had LASIK surgery. And the infielder said, well, that's pretty impressive. And he said that he was thinking about having the same operation himself. And evidently and went he? on to do. Yes. yes. But a second Met catcher, yeah. Wilson, uh, Ramos. Wilson Ramos, who's a very good catcher, uh, though he wasn't nearly as good until he had LASIK surgery. <laughs> he had LASIK surgery, too, I think, following in the footsteps yeah. of Nito, who was competing okay. for the job. So once Nito got the, the LASIK surgery, Wilson Ramos did, too, and his batting average went up by 78 points okay. with the LASIK surgery. So is this a win-win? So no, 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 no. I think that I wraps just, it up. Yeah, hope, no, no. <laughs> Here, let, let me, all right, since I'm a Met fan. Number one, uh, Wilson Ramos... It. Here we go. Wilson Ramos had the surgery way before Nino. Well, uh, Wilson Ramos details. has been an excellent hitter for years. Number three, as a former catcher, when when someone throws a pitch, if the if the wind blows your contact lens, it doesn't make any difference. In the split second it takes for the ball to get there, well, you're not moving the gloves. Hold on, but but, it, but evidently it did to Nito. No, no, no. Wait, how many two mile an hour pitches have you caught? Uh, more than you'd think. But here here's my point. You're quoting the New York Times sports section. It's shame on you. I mean, what, they have no idea what's going on. <laughs> no, that's but I will close by making a couple observations about the Mets. Because I do think you came up with an important point about the Mets. A lot of teams during the offseason make a big splash or try to make a big splash by spending a lot of money signing free agents. Bryce Harper, as you know, is now leaving the Washington team. He's going to Philly for an average of $30 million a year. Many Machado, $30 million a year, etc. That's not the Mets game. The Mets are turning their fortunes around by a lot of incremental measures. Like LASIK surgery. Like LASIK surgery. <laughs> Other teams look outside. Mets look within. They're inside the box. They say, here's a guy, Nito, who I can tell you honestly can't hit a lick. Okay? And uh, notwithstanding his fabulous conversations with people at second base, can't hit at all. Probably has never been to second base before, meeting new people. But my point is that <laughs> a team can't hit, can't do anything. And they say, how are we going to get better? You. Well, get your eyes examined. Right? That's number one. Number two, just a couple of things. I'm going to put them over the top. Jose Canseco has now written the Mets and says that he can improve Tim Tebow's baseball skills. I thought he was playing for the Newark Bears. Who? Tebow? Canseco. Uh, I don't know what he's doing. But he says, look, at the age of 55, I can you know, hit a ball 450 yards. He plays softball. I can make Tim Tebow a fantastic hitter. Well, yeah. All the right. same way he made himself a fantastic hitter. He right. just juiced up. All right. Wait a second. Wait a second. There's more. There's more. There's two more left. There's Dominic Smith, again, trying to look within the organization. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. say, guy can't hit, can't feel, looks terrible. Sleep apnea. Instead of spending $30 million a year, $28 for a sleep apnea device. <laughs> 
the guy is hitting like he was experiencing apnea during no oh. at night. Oh, according I see. to him, so he was tired. According to Tom, Dominic Smith, he gave very specific interview on this point. He said when he saw a ninety-five mile per hour fastball when he was trouble in trouble sleeping, it looked like hundred and three. Now he's sleeping <laughs> and it looks like ninety-five, yeah. and he's hitting he the ball like nobody's it. business. But all these are small steps <laughs> compared to the one big step the Mets have taken to improve the team. And it's a change in attitude. And I bring it to your attention because you're sort of a Yankee fan. Sort and I, of. And, and, and you're thinking, wow, we have teams loaded. We got Judge. We got, you know, whoever. Stanton. Stanton. Fantastic team. Led, you know, record in home runs for the, the Yankees last year. They're going to be fantastic. And, and again, here's what they're missing. The Mets ahead of the curve. All right? The Mets have come up with a culture change that's based on a new slogan. The new slogan is a, a takeoff on the word mindset. The Mets have now adopted the slogan, the Mets mindset, and have signs all over the uh, complex down there in Florida, and also they have T-shirts for various players right. on the team. Since it does the Mets beg the mindset, question, well, what is And the I'm Mets not going to tell you. Okay. They have now, and they published this. I'm surprised they made it public because it's very easy. Have they for informed other teams. the players? Uh, they have. They keep driving this in. Turns out every letter of the word mindset stands for something else. All right? So I'll give you an opportunity to tell me what you think it is. So M, for example, what does M in mindset mean for the mess? No. M stands for mental toughness. Okay. All right? Right? I, oh, is it? Yes, mindset. I, I is... <laughs> Integrity. That's good. But no. To improve <laughs> every day. N... Let's just go through them, okay? <laughs> Wrap it, it up, please. N is for no excuses. D is for dominate, okay? S is for... Sympathy. No. S is for selflessness. E is for excellence. Or S-E is for self-examination. And T is for total commitment. Hmm. So I think we all have a lot to look forward to for the Mets season next year, don't you think? As much as ever. As much as now, ever. And I have to say something. I'm very concerned about this LASIK issue. Yeah. Because it's going to be something like well, he's not on drugs, but he had LASIK done. Yeah, you're right. There could be an asterisk. <laughs> you know, you, right. I'm sorry, can't get into the whole thing. He had no, LASIK surgery. No, he had LASIK surgery, so he's had an advantage. Let me tell you all something. Right. What about all, you, all these poor people that's that can't That's what's called it? a nice problem to have. <laughs> 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 I don't think Thomas Nito is going to be the test case for whether someone should be kept out of the Hall of Fame because they had LASIK surgery. Well, I'm seeing this coming. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, right. we'll know mark a, my words. a year from now. We'll revisit this. Yes. We'll All maybe. right. So thank you, Cindy thank and David you. and Gompert. Uh, this is all we've got, I think, <laughs> uh, from uh, Tamsin and Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin and Dan read the paper. See you next week. See you next year in Richmond again. Bye. Bye. Bye.